Well, this morning we're back in the, the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel. And uh, back through the subject of leadership. Leadership is an important thing in this world. Who and, and why we follow someone is a good thing to think through. And in this world, uh, we're continually confused about what we should look for in our leaders. We want leaders who can make a difference in the world, who can work through difficulties and complex situations. But what qualities do you look for in a leader? Well, what sets them apart from everyone else? Uh, is it intelligence or decisiveness or strength or commitment or honesty and humility? I'm sure there's quite a list that you look for in a leader. And leadership is the name of the game when you look at the book of 1 Samuel. As we have seen, uh, Saul would have a number of these qualities that I just listed as for his resume of leadership. He showed brilliance, he showed decisiveness, he showed commitment, he even showed humility. And yet in chapter 13 that we looked at two weeks ago, he was deemed unqualified by God. And the issue for Saul, he lacked faith. He lacked the ability to trust in God. He lacked the ability to follow through in obedience to God's word. And two weeks ago, we left off chapter 13, following the end of Saul's reign as king as God saw it. And Saul was no longer going to be the one to whom God was going to work through. He would bring his own king onto the scene, and we'll see that unfold in the next few chapters. But I want to look at the last few verses of chapter 13. We, we read most of chapter 13 two weeks ago. I didn't get a chance to, to dive in, but the last nine verses of the chapter, we read that the military situation for Israel is bleak. So follow with me as I read chapter 13, verses 15 through 23. And Samuel rose and went from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet with the army. They met up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with them, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed at Geba at of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horan. And another company turned toward the border that looks down the valley of Zebarim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in any hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Bichmash. So I want some homework for you. Read those verses in the King James this week and let me know what you find in verses 20 and 21. You're gonna do it right now on your phone, aren't you? Some interesting translation there of the, of the plowshare and the sickle. But what we find in those verses ending chapter 13 is God's people are, are not, they don't have the proper tools and the, and the proper weapons to defend themselves against their enemies. And it is a fraction of the enemy, or the, excuse me, of the army left with one-fifth of the number that, they begin with, and, and they are dependent on none the other, the Philistines, for their tools and their weapons to be serviced. 
They had to pay them to have them serviced. And the Philistines have them right where they want them. And things don't look great for God's people. And their king, as we saw earlier in the chapter, is now disqualified from God's viewpoint. They, they don't have weapons. Only Saul and Jonathan are armed, as it says in verse 22. And their, their enemy isn't going to allow them to, to have the situation set up. The situation doesn't look good. And what will God do? Well, as we will see in chapter 14, God always, God always has a plan. And, and the theme throughout Scripture is, is God using men for his glory. Man is always God's method. And in chapter 14, is no different. God has a man to lead the people, and it's not Saul, it's his son, Jonathan. And when we come to this chapter, we see the comparison between the two leaders, Saul and Jonathan, two men with two different models of leadership. And because this morning my desire is to walk through the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 14, 52 verses, I want you to see what's being communicated through these two men. These two men are our leaders, one has a fearless faith, and the other has a faithless fear. It's that simple this morning. Jonathan with a fearless faith, and Saul with a faithless fear. So I'm going to pray and ask God to give you understanding, and I, and I want you to pray that God would speak through me this morning. So let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come and to worship you. God, we thank you that we can come boldly before your throne and we know that you hear us, that you love us, that you desire to commune with us. God, I ask that you would be with your people here this morning, that you would be the teacher for them, that they would come and understand what your word says, that they would see the faith of Jonathan and they would understand the fear that rules Saul's life. They would choose to follow you with trust and faith amidst of the difficulties that are facing them in their lives. May they follow you, God. It will be sure to give you all the honor and glory for what you'll do in this place. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So I'm gonna read the chapter in its entirety here and then we'll dive in. First Samuel chapter 14. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Boses, and the name of the other is Senna. The one crag rose on the north to the front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. 
So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within as it were half a furrow's length as in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah, Benjamin, looked, and behold, a multitude was dispersing here and there. And Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went to battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. And when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ayalon. And the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And they told Saul, behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you, will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. 
And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And he said to all Israel, you should be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if guilt is in your people of Israel, give Thuman. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also you shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan, so he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship of Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvai, and Maldushah. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of firstborn was Merab, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahinomaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner the father of Abner, who was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. It's a long chapter, isn't it? We're not going to go verse by verse every word, just so you know. There's a contrast there. Did you catch it in between these two leadership styles, between Saul and Jonathan, between fear and faith? Saul loses the kingdom in chapter 13 because he acted in unbelief. He, fear drove his actions. And Jonathan's the opposite. God works in his leadership simply because he had faith in God. So let's dive in. Jonathan is the first. We'll look at him and his fearless faith. And the chapter begins by following Jonathan in his pursuit of the Philistines. He's going to take his armor bearer with him to the battle of the garrison of the Philistines. But this is not an easy trip. In verse 4, it says there's a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other. And, and, and they're going to travel over these rocky crags, which means a, a rugged cliff. The Hebrew is more literal. It says a, a tooth cliff. This is a treacherous journey for them. Friends, faith takes us on journeys that seem dangerous and difficult. And for Jonathan, faith was, was important. It was, it was going to display who he truly was. He had a fearless faith. In the verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And then get this, he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This verse 
just rang in my head all week. And Jonathan appears to have no fear at all with the Philistines. He refers to them as the uncircumcised. And we'll see that designation later for them in chapter 17. And this isn't a, a teenage arrogance here. It's his courage, his, his faith in his God. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. This is what a leader should say. This is how a leader should think. His eyes are not on the men. His eyes are on God. He was the daring sort who imagined possibilities where others only saw barriers. He saw opportunities for God to work where others saw dead ends. It was faith. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by, by many or by few. He, he knew that salvation wasn't of man, but by the Lord. It wasn't going to come because of human power, ingenuity, but by divine grace. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. If, if God was pleased to use Jonathan to gain a victory for Israel, then it really didn't matter what forces were behind him or in front of him. His faith didn't rely on a, a favorable circumstance. His faith relied on God. It may be the Lord will work for us. Do, do you hear his words? You know, in these words, you can see, as we'll see in a few chapters, why he and David became such close friends. David will say in a few chapters, he'll say, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. And jo Jonathan here is, isn't guaranteeing anything. He's showing his faith in God. He's showing his conviction that is basic to all faith in God, that God has infinite power. How did Jonathan know this? How did Jonathan come to this faith? Where did, he, where did he get this perspective on God? It's from history, from what God had already done. The whole record of the period of the judges, Israel's recent history, it showed that when it pleased the Lord to deliver Israel, he would do it any way he desired, through many men or just a few. One particular from the book of Judges says, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Through, through many or through one? Or, or Gideon, who was at one point hiding in the wine press when the Lord called him into action, and when his army was too big, as God saw it, from, from 32,000, he dwindled it down to 300. And what did God do? With the Lord, they, they routed the Midianites. So Jonathan's right. It may be the, that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. One quote that has rang in my head this week is John Knox, who said, a man with God is always in the majority. Always. Do you remember the story in 2 Kings 6? Elisha and his servant, the king of Assyria is fighting against Israel, but every time he's about to attack, the king of Israel finds out and leaves before the attack. And the king of Syria is irritated and asks his, his people the question, who's the traitor here? 
Who, who is the one that's going to the king of Israel and giving him our plans? And their reply to him, do you remember? None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king the words that you speak in your bedroom. Nothing's private, just so you know. There's, there's nowhere safe to have these conversations. God hears. And so the angry king orders his army to go to the Dothan and capture this menacing prophet. And it's a hilarious picture when you think about it. A huge army is headed out. You know, if someone were to see him and stop him and say, where, where are you headed? What's going on? Well, we're going to take care of one prophet. This menacing prophet. It's ruining the plans of our king. And every time, they say, every time we're about to crush Israel, he tells the king of Israel our attack, and they escape. And, and we're going to go get him. We're going to eliminate this prophet. And so Elisha here in this story has a servant, a young man who's probably in the school of prophets. And just the two of them, just the two of them. Sounds familiar, right? And he hears the rumbling and the noise of the army. And he looks out on the mountainside and it's filled with this, the Syrian army. And he calls Elisha frantic. And he says, what are we going to do? It's just the two of them. And they see the army. You know, he, this, this, this servant has the, the rational response that any of us would have. We are toast. We're dead. He steps outside. He sees this army. And Elisha calmly responds. He says, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Can you imagine this conversation just happening? Like just looking at Elisha, really, can you count? One, two. Don't be afraid. He's thinking he's lost it. He's just gotten too old. He can't, he's not rational anymore. Maybe he needs to get his eyes checked. He can't see what I'm seeing. But Elisha in his weird supernatural calmness knows his God. He says, and Elisha prayed and said, Oh Lord, please open his eyes, servant, that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. We have eyesight problems. You know, I find it interesting that Elisha doesn't pray in that story, God, send the army. He's not praying, God, please send someone to defend us. No, he's calmly praying for God to open the eyes of this fearful young man so that he can see what's already there. And he opens his eyes and he sees the mountains filled with horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. And from that, friends, we realize that we have limited vision. The reality that we see in our world is finite at best, but there's so much there that we can't see. There are dimensions around us that we're not able to see and know, but they're always present. And having faith in God means that our vision is not based on this world. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. Faith is not jumping into something that's pointless. Faith is, faith is a word that speaks of careful thought and, and intentional thought. And what are our thoughts about? About God. About his promises. 
And faith is having positive certainty that's displayed in action. And in this story in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan is walking in faith and resolves to make himself available for God to use. He will trust in him. He will have faith in God. And what happens when Jonathan trusts? God answers. And the people follow. You know, Jonathan says, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. And his armor bearer, did you catch his response? Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Make note of that, because you see the response of the men to Saul later, and it's not the same. His armor bearer is with him, heart and soul. He will follow him. And Jonathan's faith in his God is worth following. And the plan is shared. They will go, and if they invite us in, God is answered, and they will be given over to us. And, and this is what happens. They approach the garrison, and in verse 11, the Philistines respond, look, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes that they've hidden themselves. And they mock Jonathan. They mock the armor bearer. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't they mock? They, they ran away. Remember then, chapter 13, the people hid themselves. But now the garrison Bring them in. They, they say they want to show them a thing. And boy, does God have something to show them. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And the first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men. And in verse 15, there was a panic in a camp in the field among all the people. And the garrison, even the raiders trembled. And the earth quaked. Friends, this is God answering. It was always there. He uses the faith of, of, of this man, Jonathan, to bring about the end of this, this garrison of 20 men. But not only that, it causes a panic in the camp of the Philistines. And the earth is quaking. God is working. All a result of this, the bold faith of Jonathan, this, this fearless faith in Jonathan. A two-man attack on a 20-man garrison that eventually causes a, a nationwide panic. And then I wonder, why, why, why do we struggle to have faith like, like this? It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you and keeps you and strengthens you. You know, picture yourself on the edge of a cliff. You're ready to fall. And at last moment, before you fall, you see some branches sticking out. Now, if you say, I know that branch can save me, I have, I have no doubts at all, but you don't actually personally commit, personally grab it, then you're dead. But if you look at it and you say, I'm not sure if it can help me, I'm not positive, I don't know, it might save me, I'm not sure, but you grab it and you live. Why? Because it's not the strength of your faith, but the object that your faith that saves you. Strong faith in a weak object is fatal, but even weak faith in a strong object will save. Now, your faith may be weak in God, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And the object of your faith, if you are indeed a Christian here this morning, is Jesus Christ. It is God in all of his promises. And so, friends, if you're sitting here this morning and you realize that your faith is weak, it's because you don't know the object of your faith well enough. 
But friends, when you, when you learn of Jesus, when you learn of him more and more, when he invades all of your life, every corner, every crevice, your faith will become increasingly stronger. And strange enough, it's, it's not that your faith grows, it's that your understanding of who you trust progressively conforms to reality. And you begin to have the vision to see God in all of your life. It's just like Elisha in 2 Kings. How does this happen? How, how do we have more faith? You immerse yourself in the faith-growing word of God. You read of Jesus, friends. This is the only way to have fearless faith like Jonathan. It's to know God. And the only way to know God is to know his word. So that's Jonathan. Second is Saul, the faithless fear. To be honest with you, as I sat down and, and worked through this passage, it was kind of depressing to move from a faith-filled man of Jonathan to now faithless man Saul. And Saul continues to disappoint in the story. And we finished two weeks ago looking at the foolishness of this disobedience in chapter 13, and we, we, we barely have enough time to recover, and then we hit chapter 14, back into the stupidity of Saul. And I'll just encourage you again, friends, don't be like Saul. It's one tragic decision followed by another. And you, lo- you move from a, a fearless faith to a faithless fear. Faith dares, faith often triumphs, and faith rallies the people of God. Fear doesn't. And, and you will see in this chapter and the chapters that follow is a man ruled by a faithless fear. And where is Saul in this story? Well, if you go back to verse 2, you read that he has set up court. Follow tradition by taking a seat beneath or besides a, a notable tree. And who's with him? His, his royal chaplain, the proper descendant of the high priestly line wearing the sacred ephod. And so far, so good until we learn of the identity of the priest. Did you catch that? Ahijah, the grandson of the wicked Phineas, of the rejected and cursed house of, Eli, of Eli, the nephew of the glory has departed Ichabod. Friends, these these details are not inserted just casually. We need to take notice. Things are not going well for Saul. And all of this, and all the situation where Saul, he's sitting. The contrast of Saul sitting and Jonathan acting is clear. One is serving, one is not. And Jonathan has left and Saul doesn't know. And you fast forward and Jonathan has this victory over the garrison and the rumbling start and and the watchman informs them in verse 16 that the Philistines are are dispersing. Uh, Actually, the the Hebrew word is that the people were melting. The Philistine force had turned to water now and they, they move away. Something's happening. And Saul now moved to action is word that he's losing control and he calls to, to count the men. How did this happen? Who's missing? And it's Jonathan, his son, and the armor bearer. And Saul, remembering what happened before, calls for the priest to bring the ark. He, he, has to, he wants to summon God into this first. And you can imagine now Saul's fear. He's, he's losing grip on the situation and he had to get control somehow. And what better way to get control than to make sure God is inserted in the situation somehow, some way. Saul now is, is, is showing himself to be a religious man. He had a come to Jesus moment in chapter 13. And since Samuel told him that his kingship would be removed, he's putting on the clothes of religion now to show everyone, look how religious I am. He's going to show people 
Let's get the ark out here. Let's, let's hear from God. But something happens. It says, now when Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. The noise is increasing. And what does he do? Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Do you know what happened? The noise of the enemy was too big for Saul to talk to God and to listen to him at this moment. He, he literally is saying to them, guys, I, it was a good idea, but put away the ark now. We've got bigger problems. This is obviously the time where he thinks a mighty king needs to get involved. You know, Saul thought he should consult God, but there are things getting out of control now. So, so, so God, step over here so that I can take care of this issue. And as God removes his hand over Saul's life, he becomes more and more religious, but his religion is all on the outside. See, Saul has a boss relationship with the Lord. A boss relationship. What do I mean here? Well, this is opposite of Jonathan who has a child relationship with the Lord. You can hear and see the difference in their words. If you have a boss relationship with God, you might be religious. In fact, you probably are but almost everything is done in public. For example, if you're a churchgoer, I mean, you're here. You're here at church, at least when you don't have other things to do. And you're regular. And when you're here, you're, you, you pray and you give and you read your Bible and you listen and you do what's asked of you. You do as the boss says. You pray and you worship. But do you have a rich prayer life? Do you spend more time secretly all by yourself praying during the week than you do here at church on Sunday? See, friends, if you don't, if this is the main place for you to pray, if Sunday morning is the only time that you read the Bible, then you probably have a boss relationship with God, not a child relationship with him. And take a look here at Saul again. He has a boss relationship with God. It's a quid pro quo relationship. He, he's trying to show others that he knows God, that he's a good person, that he's, he's doing what he should. Now he can get what he can from God. It's a, a quid pro quo. You're the boss. I'll, I'll do what you say so that you give me my paycheck. And you might be the same. And your self-image is based on the fact that you see yourself as a good person, which means it's a, a fragile self-image. When people criticize you or when you fail, that is why you go back to anxiety and self-righteousness. But if you have a child relationship with God because he's your father and not your boss, then your self-image is based not on you being a good person, but on being loved by this person. There's a huge difference, friends. If you have a, a boss relationship with God like Saul, then praying and reading the word is about getting things. I, I need to get things. You want things. And maybe that's what you think religion is all about. What you can get. You, you know, you'll give time, you'll give energy, and you'll, you'll give money, but, but you want something in return. And your prayers resemble this. God, God I need this. I want this. I've done this for you, and you owe me. 
It's, it's not that we can't ask God for something, but as Christians, we come to God as a child, to our father. We don't come as an employee to the boss. You remember how Jonathan was? He says, it, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or a few. Can you, can you hear the relationship that he has with God? It's not a boss relationship. It's a child relationship. God in his, in his sovereignty may do this. Either way, we're gonna serve him. But Saul doesn't know this relationship. He's, he's religious now. This, this is a contract for him between he and God. He'll perform and God will perform. It's not a relationship. It's, it isn't a friendship. And very simply, the, the whole story and their interaction with God shows us the different wrong views that we have of prayer. See, the, the main purpose of prayer is fellowship. It's because we have a relationship. It's because we have friendship with God. It's adoration and confession and repentance. That's what a relationship is, right? The main reason you pray is because you have a relationship with God. If, if you're in love with someone, you get together, right? You spend time with each other, right? To tell them how much you admire them, to talk with them, to make sure that there's not any issues between each of you. And if there's an issue between the two of you, you want to you work out that issue, you want to deal with the issue. It's, it's adoration, it's repentance. That's the relationship. But if you have a prayer life that only gets bigger when you have a problem in your life, and then you begin to pray, asking God for things, when things are not going well in your life, your, your prayer life is nothing more than an employee to a boss. You have a boss relationship with God based on the fact that you believe that prayer is about getting things when prayer isn't about that at all. You need a child relationship with God because prayer is about relationship. And there's a distinction here between Jonathan and Saul in this story. Jonathan has this relationship with God and Saul is all about performance. And we see a, a more striking difference between this father and son as we move through the story. And when we get to verse 22, the men who, who previously hidden in themselves are now out of the caves and enjoying the attack. And in verse 23, we read, so the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And God, yet again, brings rescue to his people. This is the first half of the chapter. And the second half gives us a glimpse of the heart of Saul. When you come to verse 24, we come to a flashback in the story. This happens in the Bible when the narrator gives us some additional info, telling us something that happened earlier. And he says, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until evening, and I am avenged on my enemies, so none of the people had tasted food. And we can't help but notice the contrast between Saul's words and Jonathan's words. Remember Jonathan's words. It, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or few. And how different that is from Saul. Cursed be the man who eats food until the evening. Saul orders a fast. He's making a religious requirement. He's binding the consciousness of the people according to the religious oath. 
that they not eat food. And if they do, there's harsh consequences. And Jonathan, well, and the story says he didn't, he didn't hear this oath given to the people. And we read in verses 27, 29 that, that he dips his staff into the honeycomb and he, and he lifts it to eat. And he's tired, he's hungry, he's in a battle. What else do you do when you're hungry in a battle? You eat so that you can continue the battle. And the people, they see this, they're horrified. They tell him about his, his father's oath not to eat. And his response in verse 29 gives us some insight of the madness of Saul. Then Jonathan said in verse 29, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. Now this is a, a bold thing for a son before the king to go against his father publicly. And he, he uses words that are taken out of the story of Achan when he described that he troubled the land. It's a serious charge that Jonathan makes. And he's stating that Saul, in making this oath, is, is troubling the land. He's binding the consciousness of, uh, of, uh, consciousness of these men with a religious oath. It's a form of, of legalism. He is violating, in Jonathan's eyes, these, these men and the understanding of what the word and their obedience to God. And the men, well, they respond by eating the spoil that they have taken from war, but they're eating the meat with the blood. This is significant because the blood was a symbol of life. The Israelites were not permitted to eat meats that had not yet had the blood drained out of them. This was usually done by hanging the meat. And the blood of the animal was a big part of the sacrificial system, so the Israelites were not to eat this. And now Saul, who's super religious, calls for an altar to be erected. And all this is happening because Saul made a foolish oath. Saul builds the altar and proceeds to have a sacrifice. But where's the priest? It's Saul and his religion that's leading the people now. But soon after, Saul has a plan to go and, and plunder the Philistines and the people. Did you catch the reaction again? They say to him, do whatever seems good to you. It's a huge difference in the reaction of the people in following Saul's leadership versus the armor bearer of Jonathan. And the priest is there and, and says, we should consult God. And so Saul inquires of God, but there's no answer. God's not answering Saul. This should give Saul some pause to what he's doing, but it doesn't. He moves on. He wants to find out who is in sin. And, and the rest of the story is Saul bringing the charges to anyone but, but himself. And it's not just anyone. It's his own son. Saul is, is willing to see his own son die to cover his foolish and sinful behavior as the king. Remember, I've told you in the last number of months in this story, you will see Saul implode. And he does it. It gets worse in chapter 15. And Saul cannot see any sin in himself. He is a fool. A fool is a person who is so wise in his or her eyes so blind that they don't see the havoc that they're wrecking. And Saul is causing havoc now. A fool is unwilling to have any worthwhile self-reflection. He, he can't find any guilt within himself. And this fits perfectly within the culture today. The, the mantra of our world, the culture that we live in, is that problems come from the outside of us. And the answer for our problems come from the inside. 
But Christianity says that your main problem comes from the inside of you. And God is the one that solves your problems. You can't do it on your own. See, friends, Christianity says your biggest problem is you. Your biggest problem is you. And I was watching the Olympics. I don't know if you've watched some of that. And it's interesting to see the interaction because a lot of these athletes are kids. I can say that now because I'm 40. 18-year-old kids. And, you know, the interaction after they perform well. I'm interviewing one and talking about the performance. And this, this kid says, whatever you want to be, you have the power within you to make that happen. And I think this is our culture. This is the world's mantra. The, we, you can do it. Get it done. You have the smarts. You have the strength. You have all you need. But not just your personal future, but the problems that, that this world is faced with. The social prejudice, the dysfunctional family, the political and economic problems, they're there. And all of the resources that you need are inside of you. And friends, that's bunk. The Bible says different. Martin Luther said that the human nature, and he used Latin terms, incurvatus in C, which means curved in on itself. The human nature is curved in on itself. Our, our fundamental nature is to be self-centered. To feel like we are the center of the universe. And we are so self-centered, we are blind to see how self-centered we are. And you don't have to teach your kids this, right, parents? They're born with it. Right now, we have a two-and-a-half-year-old walking around her house thinking she owns the joint. On constant repeat from her mouth is milk, milk, milk. She's not just stating that she knows the word. She wants milk. She doesn't care that I'm busy with another child. She doesn't care that my wife's doing laundry. She wants milk. And friends, she's so self-centered. I didn't have to teach her this. And you might think coming into my house, that looks cute. It's not cute. And it's most definitely not cute on a man, a grown man, or a grown woman. And that's the world we live in. This world is so self-centered. We're, we're so self-centered, we can't admit how self-centered we are. This is why people are miserable. Because you have a world full of little centers of the universe running around screaming for milk. But friends, only one person can be the center of the universe. Only one. And because we all want to be the center, we're, we're clashing with each other. We fight with each other. When God is the rightful one to be the center of the universe. The center of your universe. Only wrap it up. I know I've gone over time. Saul was living now in this chapter without any help. And you can see how that goes. He, he alienates people, his own son. He, he's living blindly now with no guide to help. He has chosen this. And I remember a number of years ago, before Ryan and Stephanie Buzak were in Togo as missionaries, and Ryan was a missionary. If you don't know, Ryan's a missionary pilot. And when they were still here raising support, he had a number of hours that he needed to do flying a plane. And I remember one Saturday he asked me if I wanted to go along for a flight. And, I was very interested. 
And I was just amazed when I got onto this little plane of all the instruments on this plane. And Ryan was dutifully explaining every single one of them to me. And, and, and I didn't know what he said, but I was thankful that he did. And, and there's this rating that I found, and I, I think Ryan mentioned to me, but I'm not sure. It's the IFR rating, Instrument Flight Rules. And I'm not sure if Ryan has this rating or not, you have to ask him. But it means that, that if he has this rating, he can fly when he cannot see the horizon or the ground. And he would need to rely on the instrument panels to, to, to get by. And in order to get this rating, I'm told that the instructor puts a visor over the pilot's head, blocking their view through the windshield, which forces him to rely on the instruments. And friends, we need the IFR rating in our lives. We need to rely on God and his word. And so often we're looking out the windshield trying to, to discern what to do in this world when God says, you need to rely on me and my word. You see, Jonathan had this and Saul didn't. And the only way to have this is to trust God over our feelings, to trust God over the situations or even the fears that constantly chime in our ears. And how do we trust God? We know him through the word. You know, the focus of this chapter is faith. We have the fearless faith of Jonathan and the faithless fear of Saul. One of them trusts in himself and the other trusts in God. And the goal isn't to be like Jonathan, although he's admirable in this chapter. The goal is to be like Christ. Who was bold. Who trusted God. Who, who came on this earth and went and suffered and died in our place. And Christ went through the jaws of death and came back to life. Securing our salvation. We shouldn't look to live like Jonathan. We should live, learn to live and hope and trust in Christ. And remember that he is the object of our faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this challenging chapter in your word that, that guides us and leads us and teaches us more about who you are and how you work within your creation. And God, we recognize this morning that we have no other king than Jesus, that he is Lord of all. And we again, together crown him Lord of our lives. He is Lord over all our pain. He is Lord over all of our joy. He is Lord in all of our comfort, all of our riches. Help us, remind us again that Jesus is better than everything on earth. And God, make our hearts believe this. Remind us yet again that our faith is not in things in this world, it's in you. And that our hearts and souls declare that Jesus is better. Make our hearts believe this, God. Give us faith to believe in him, to trust him no matter the pain and trouble, to glorify him in all that we do. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.